Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices here on the Fed by Ravens Media Network. Hey, we're pleased to welcome Kenneth Shrupp to the program. Kenneth is a, is a Young Voices contributor. And Kenneth, tell us just a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Hey, so I'm, I've been a Young Voices contributor for the better part of a year now. I really love writing on government policy, spending, culture, space, you name it. Um, I have very diverse interests. I live out in California. I'm editor-in-chief of the California Review. And um, by day, I'm a public affairs consultant helping governments and corporations solve public-facing problems. Okay, well, our theme today on the show is we're talking about the budget and the United States budget is, well, bloated would be a polite way to put it. But this $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill is catching a lot of people's attention. I know you're working on an article about how this reflects one of the worst bipartisan legacies. Walk me through what you see from your vantage point about why people should be paying attention to this this reconciliation bill and what it means, you know, for the for the near term as well as maybe the long term. So let's start off with the raw data. Uh, by 2050, the uh, Penn Wharton Budget Group, which is a nonpartisan group at Penn Wharton, uh, estimates that this new budget plan will shave off 4.8% of our GDP and add 10 trillion, $11 trillion to our debt by 2050, assuming that its programs don't actually sunset, which is most likely a certainty given that a 10-year government program is not likely to be a temporary government program. And that means a huge loss for our economy. 4.8% of our GDP shrinkage in our GDP would equate to the size of the entire Russian economy this year. Our economy by 2050 would be smaller than the entire Russian economy's worth of GDP today. It's enormous. Wow. It's I, I'm still trying to get my mind around the numbers because it seems to me and, and I don't know if, you, if this is data you have at your, at your fingertips, but it seems to me just 10 years ago, I was listening to various commentators, you know, kind of hyperventilate over the prospect of we're pushing up into double digit deficit, meaning over 10 trillion dollars. I think it may have been pushing up to 12 trillion or 15 trillion. And I would remember thinking at the time, boy, that's a lot. And now we're sitting at what twenty nine trillion dollars for the national debt. Yeah, these are these are enormous numbers. Let's just remember that before the Iraq War, uh, before nine eleven, we were looking. We had a six trillion dollar deficit, and both Al Gore and George Bush ran on platforms not about whether or not they were going to eliminate the deficit and pay down the national debt, but how they were going to do it. We we had we had fiscal hawks on both the left and the right. Uh, but then, but then something happened. Nine Eleven happened, and that surplus, authored by Clinton and a Republican Congress working together, uh, became a deficit. Bush Bush went out and said, "Well, look, we we have to have a deficit this year. We passed some tax cuts. The, we're having a recession from the dot com bubble bursting, and we have to spend a lot more money on homeland security. We'll get back to cutting the deficit, making this country more affordable, putting Social Security, all of our." Uh, non-discretionary spending programs on a diet later. That never happened. That has not happened. Even though Republicans have had unified control of government uh, several times during boom years, uh, during the Bush Bush era, during the Trump era, those first two years, we were still passing billion-dollar deficits in the early Trump era when we had full control of government. Republicans simply haven't been walking the walk 
uh, when it comes to their deficit proposals. And Democrats, quite frankly, are never going to get back on the fiscal uh, conservatism train. That, that, that train is gone. But uh, we truly are in a dire state. If you look at the data from the Congressional Budget Office from March, which is the last time they put out a budget um, a, a budget report, we have an upward-facing hockey stick in our debt beginning at the end of this decade where the interest is so crushingly large on our debt and we are spe- our deficits are shrinking that we're going to be left with exponentially growing debt that we can't afford to pay for unless we print money, uh, take on or take on more debt, um, or radically cut spending and potentially even increase taxes. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> not with the current bunch. And I'm oh, I, don't, I don't think that's going to happen. I think we're just going to have hyperinflation. But I'm not here yeah. to be a doomer and gloomer. I'm, right. I'm here. I'm here to say that this is a bipartisan issue. Um, and it, we, we truly are going to be facing dire straits unless something changes. And, and we have several election cycles to do it. We have two presidential election cycles, five normal, in, in five, five election cycles, including two presidential. So it's not like things can't change. So tell me this, Kenneth. If something's got to change, it can't just be one party beating the other party because clearly Republicans, as you mentioned, have had their chance and, and have not moved on it. There, it seems like there's something about keeping the status quo going. That so there's there's bipartisanship here. Uh, what would have to change politically? I mean, a third party would would something have to happen to bring the Republicans and, and Democrats back to a sense of, of principle? Because I don't no, see I don't see either of I, them wanting to to slow the spending. They have their I don't, their pet projects. So when Republicans are out of power, they're extremely adamant about restricting spending and making sure taxes go up, making sure the regulatory regime is confined right. and the bureaucracy doesn't grow. Uh, so I think it's simply a matter of holding Republican people, uh, office holders accountable to their promises. And we came very close. Remember the Tea Party movement in late 2000s, early 2010s? We had Paul Ryan come into office. He's like, here's how we're going to get the bud- budget deficit down to zero. We're going to you know, do X, Y, and Z. Uh, they they ended up not being able to do it because they didn't have full control of government. Um, and unfortunately, they were the Tea Party movement was co-opted by corporate interests to a certain extent, and also didn't really pivot very well to emerging cultural and economic issues. They really, they really was just a debt and taxes focused movement. But something like the Tea Party really could hold Republicans office holders accountable. I think the millions of people that we saw in 2009, 2010, if we had that same energy and that same focus, we could we could have a Republican government that finally could put its foot down. Is this something that is going to have to be solved by the voters or are there any other contingencies that could potentially uh, it, it, it's, it's entirely up to the voters. It's entirely up to the voters. The party itself uh doesn't exactly support measures that are going to put their majority at risk. Party exists to achieve party dominance. And unfortunately, the best way for parties to succeed is giving out stuff to to their supporters. So the Tea Party movement was a grassroots movement from the ground up of people who 
simply once they once they saw what a problem government debt was, what a problem taxation, how excessive taxation was going to be, they they rose up. And I don't think the people of the Tea Party movement would have tolerated the fiscal, uh, you know, blowouts that we had when Republicans unified control of government in like 2017, 2018, when we passed those two budgets. Uh, it, if we can get that same energy, that same focus on top of any Republican agenda, you know, I don't, I don't care if it's the Trump agenda, the DeSantis agenda, uh, even the Romney agenda, right? As long as you can actually get the spending under control, realize that our fiscal stability relies on our government's solvency and ability to pay debt. Um, and not have to print money, then we can have a much happier, more successful, more stable society. Kenneth, what happened with the Tea Party? I remember when it started and I thought, oh, wow, look, people are actually finding the backbone to stand up. But somewhere along the way, the Tea Party, I don't know if it fizzled, if it was co-opted. What In your mind, what happened to that momentum that they had started to build? So I'm not an expert on this, but I think there are two things that happen. First was that corporate interests realized that uh, this this movement could be used to uh, lower their corporate tax rates, which is fine. We had a deep, we had a very uncompetitive corporate tax rate, sure, but that also meant that the movement suddenly couldn't attack any of the corporate interests that create special exclusions for themselves, manipulate the tax code, right? Subsidies here and there. They couldn't attack that either. Uh, so that was, that was, that was part of the economic aspect. And of course that meant that the tea party couldn't, couldn't capture any of the energy that propelled Trump to office, like, uh, feelings on immigration or anti-globalization because those are very pro corporate interests. Um, so I, I would say, I would say cap, co- captured by corporate interests and inability to pivot to new growing interests as a result. Okay. What do you see? I know you're, you said you're a short-term pessimist, long-term optimist. Is, is there a point where we're going to see some equilibrium return, or is it just going to be spend, spend, spend until someone reaches over and turns off the spigot? Well, we can spend until we bust, which will be in the late 2020s, early 2030s. Social Security goes bankrupt in uh 2032 now, I believe that uh, might be off by a year or two. Um, so we're, we're most likely going to just spend until we have a very serious problem, but potentially things could change really. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate your optimism. I appreciate your take. Kenneth Shrupp is a Young Voices contributor, and uh, he writes on the intersection of business, politics, and media, and also serves as editor-in-chief of the California Review. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you very much, Brian. You have a good day. 